Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Yasmin Seal. Today we're welcoming onto the podcast Professor Amy Singer. She's a professor in the Department of Middle Eastern and African History at Tel Aviv University. Professor Singer, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for the invitation to just speak with you. Now, the subject of today's podcast is Ottoman Adirne. We're keeping it a little broad, and this is part of our series on urban space in the Ottoman Empire. Of course, most of the episodes in our series on urban space in the Ottoman Empire, all of which are fascinating and you can find on ottomanhistorypodcast.com, deal with the city of Istanbul, which is the most stud- which is the most studied and certainly the largest city in the Ottoman Empire for at least most of its existence. Uh, however, t- today with Professor Singer, we're looking at another very important city, indeed, as she's going to be telling us, an overlooked city in many ways, that of Adirne. Uh, and it's a very good time to be recording with you here, uh, Professor Singer, here in Istanbul, as you are just coming on the heels of a, your latest research trip, I guess, in Adirne. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Right. We actually saw each other in Adirne, so we I know did. I can certify that Professor Amy Singer was there working this summer. So some of our listeners may know Amy Singer's work on um, peasants in Palestine during the early modern period or on charity in the Ottoman Empire. But as a matter of fact, uh, she's also been working for many years uh, gradually on this project on Adirne. Uh, maybe we could start by talking a little bit about how you got interested in studying the space in the city of Adirne, which is a little far removed from some of your other research. It certainly is. And there are those people who keep asking me to speak about Ottoman Palestine, which is hasn't been the focus of my interest for a while. But it's a curious kind of journey, and I think it's interesting sometimes to draw the lines between the infinite number of existing points to show how historians bounce around and why it's not quite so irrational or erratic as it seems. Um, I started out by studying peasants in Ottoman Palestine in the 16th century, and while I was looking at them and the villages that they lived in in those records, I noticed that many of those villages in the Sanjak of Jerusalem, in the administrative district of Jerusalem, were transferred to a large endowment, a wakf, Hmm. uh, or vakuf, during the period I was looking at. And that vakuf was for a large public kitchen mm-hmm. in the middle of the city of Jerusalem that was founded by Hurem Sultan, the wife of Sultan Suleiman. So from the villages, I moved into the city and started to look at this large public kitchen. Mm-hmm. And from one public kitchen, I got interested in the topic of public kitchens all over the empire on the one hand, and on the other hand, on the more general subject of charity right. and philanthropy. So I went one direction and looked at charity for a while, and then I've come back to looking at the emirates, the public kitchens. And in doing that, I looked for a space in the Ottoman Empire where there was more than one public kitchen because mm-hmm. Jerusalem had one. But there were several large cities which had many public kitchens, and including Istanbul, Bursa, Edirne, Damascus, Amasya, uh, and a few others. I wanted to go to a city which had several public kitchens, but which wasn't Istanbul, which I find overwhelmingly large. And I looked around, and Edirne was definitely a candidate. It also, I was also attracted to it because it's small, it's manageable physically, 
and it seems less overwhelmed by much, much later building than Bursa, mm. for example. It's and also within easy reach of Istanbul. Yeah, and as we're probably going to talk about a little bit, that's because Adirne has a somewhat unique history among the large cities of the Ottoman Empire in terms of its fate from the 19th century onward. Exactly, exactly. So, um, so I went to Adirne initially to look for public kitchens, and I was looking at them looking for them through documents mostly and chronicles um, but I like walking around the places I'm studying so I went out there as well and as I was looking to read some background literature on Edirne uh, I came across the sort of curious situation that there really wasn't much to read and what I was reading in English and in Turkish and in other languages actually was written by a very, very small number of people whose work was translated from one language to another. Mm, okay. um, mostly um, by um, type Gökbilgen mm -hmm. uh, and then some of the early architectural historians. And that's what tweaked my curiosity mm -hmm. about Edirne as a place. Yeah, and that, that could probably say... That could probably be said about many towns and cities in the Ottoman Empire that, because they maybe don't have the visibility of uh, Istanbul and some of these other places, haven't been treated enough by scholarship uh, and, you know, that urban history scholarship that very much emphasizes Istanbul. But I mean, Adirne is especially striking in that regard. It is, after all, the capital of the Ottoman Empire before the conquest of Istanbul in 1453. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's almost stupefying <laughs> that there's so little written about it because it was the capital uh, and because it seems to have remained a very central city culturally, politically, economically, uh, and, even, and diplomatically for hundreds of years after the conquest of Constantinople. It's very, very curious that in terms of modern scholarship, it's doesn't seem to be on anybody's radar, or actually that's not quite true. It's come into people's mm -hmm. field of vision in the past 20 years, and I think one of the reasons is the founding of Trakya University in 1982, which meant that there was a, a core of scholarship beginning that included studying at Dirne. But it's also important to mention in in connection with Adirne, but I think that this is also true of Anatolia, of other Anatolian cities, um, not just of Edirne, that amateur historians who were local played a significant role in writing the first iteration of local histories. Um, so there are, there's a certain body of work on Edirne which doesn't always look like um, what university scholars produce, but mm -hmm. in fact has a core of information which mixes history and ethnography, uh, autobiography, uh, and even mixes fields between history and medicine uh, and, and economics mm -hmm. to produce very kind of uh, quirky texts which have a value mm -hmm. uh, in and of themselves for recording what a place was about. Uh, and that's, I think, very true of Edirne. And, and for our listeners, who especially who can read Turkish, we do have a short uh, bibliography on our website related to the subject of uh, Ottoman Adirne that uh, Professor Amy Singer has provided us with today. Are there any travelers' reports? Do people travel to Adirne either during its glory days as a capital or later? 
They do. Um, they, there are fewer people who tra- whose records we have who travel through during the period when it was formerly the capital, so the, basically the first half of the 15th century. Uh, one of the more valuable kinds of catalog works that was done was by the, um, the, the Istanbul scholar Stefan Yerasimos, mm. uh, who passed away several years ago. He did an enormous catalog of Travelers to the Ottoman Empire, which includes a detailed list of every place that each traveler passed through. So it's, it's an enormous work of scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've gone through that to pull out the travelers, and now I have to find them and find their descriptions. Uh, but one of the more valuable examples for, um, that we have is from the 1430s by a French traveler named uh, Bertrand de la Broquière, who has some very detailed descriptions of Edirne. Um, he comes to Edirne to look for the sultan. He's part of a diplomatic mission. The sultan isn't in Edirne, so they go chasing the sultan across Thrace uh, because he's supposedly off hunting. And when they finally catch up with him, what de la Broquière seems to say is, and he told us that he was not working right now and we should go back to Edirne and wait for him to get there. <laughs> And that's what his, his party does. And then ultimately the sultan arrives and they have a very formal audience, which he describes, which is very, very interesting and useful because it gives us a little bit of a sense of the ceremonial, of the formalities, and even of the physical layout of what was the first Ottoman palace in Edirne, which is completely absent today, partly because some of it at least is underneath the Selimiya. And the rest of it is underneath built spaces in the city. Mm-hmm. And so, so here we can see very clearly that in the very formative period of the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman dynasty, Adirne is very central as a place where that, you know, sort of that imperial identity was being made. Absolutely. And it's one of the things that is emphasized, even just looking at Erasmus's catalog, is that in the earlier period, Edirne seems to be much more on people's itineraries as they travel over land. Mm. And then, when you say earlier period, what do you mean exactly? So I mean, uh, I guess those bits and pieces that we have from the late 14th century, but the 15th century very emphatically, mm-hmm. and the early 16th century. But then gradually, what seems to be the case is that people who are traveling to Istanbul from the West travelers, that is, not the army, Uh, and this isn't Ottoman travelers now, this is foreign travelers, they at some point get on a boat. And so whereas they had formerly come overland, perhaps because they were coming from closer places, which then were conquered, so the border gets pushed back, um, sea travel or river travel on the Danube seems to become more popular and more regular so that Edirne, because of where it is on the map, is right. bypassed uh, by, by some of those travelers. On the other hand, it's, it's a kind of curious discovery that if we think about Edirne today on the map, we tend to think, okay, we go from Istanbul overland to Edirne and then maybe off into the Balkans, to Sofia, to Belgrade. But Edirne also was a river port mm-hmm. on the Marich, Maritza, Evros River, which ran north-south from the Aegean port of Enes, or Ainos, all the way up to Philibe Plovdiv Philippopolis, Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and that was a more commercial route. That's uh, doesn't seem to be a, a, a traveler's route, a diplomat's route, but a commercial route. Yeah. And the, so the river is navigable yeah. uh, for quite some time. You mentioned that architectural historians have been interested in Edirne. Why was it architecturally important? And would we know about, for example, the construction of mosques? I think that you could go to Edirne with a, an architectural history class and spend a week there easily tracing the development of Ottoman architecture only in the mosques, the large imperial mosques that are in Edirne. Um, and in fact, you could start before that with the smaller buildings, uh, the single room, small single dome structures, which were used to mark the entry and perimeter of the roads leading into the city, and then the large imperial constructions in the center. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if you start with the es what's called the Eskijami, the old mosque, which is started by Suleiman. Prince Suleiman, the son of Bayezid I, and then completed by his brother Mehmed once he is in firm control. Mm -hmm. That's the Ulujami for Edirne, and it's a parallel construction to the Ulujami in Bursa. It has many, many domes in rows. It's got great big sort of pillars in the middle of it uh, and extraordinarily huge calligraphy yeah. on the walls. Mm -hmm. And if you then go from there to the Muradia, which started as a Mevlevi, uh, a, 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 as a Mevlevi Hane, and then was turned into a mosque in the first half, well, it was, it was built as a Mevlevi Hane in the first half of the 15th century, and then probably by the early 16th century has become a mosque. Uh, you begin to see the space opening up, the dome getting larger, a single dome construction, um, but still what is called, I think, um, I think it's a reverse T plan. And then you go to the Utsharefeli, the mosque which is named for the three balconies on mm -hmm. one of its minarets. That mosque is already a single dome, which is trying to open up a bigger, unified internal uh, space. Uh, and then from there, uh, you can go to the Bayezid complex, which is on... Okay. Mm -hmm. the edge of town, this Bayezid II, so late 15th century. Uh, so we've moved through the 15th century, and that is then a really uh, extraordinary complex of buildings, which includes a mosque, includes a hospital, includes a medical school, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, includes a large public kitchen, and what seems to have been a bakery, candle-making works, hmm. uh, all down by the Tunja River, which is the river that kind of wraps around the perimeter of Edirne. And that complex is beautiful, and it's been uh, restored by two different uh, official organizations, one, Traka University, and the other, um, the Vakaflar, if I remember correctly. And it contains a large museum of medical history ottoman medical history mm -hmm. which is a, it's actually i've been there a couple times they've improved it since the first time i was there it, it's a quite a nice museum it's actually. a beautiful museum a lot of good information so. um i have to say that having been to edirne numerous times i thought perhaps this visit i wouldn't go and then in the end we did go and it many of the exhibits have been changed in the pa only in the past year there yeah. are new exhibits that have been added there's a new sponsor 
uh, for the museum, uh, one of the large um, pharmaceutical company, Turkish pharmaceutical yeah, companies, is sponsoring Abdi it. Ibrahim. Right, Abdi Ibrahim, and the exhibits have been noticeably improved. The labeling is improved. They've changed some exhibits. They've added some things. Um, so I think that it's a lesson that you can't just say, "Oh, I, you know, I checked that off my list, and I don't need to go there again." Sure. Um, because it's definitely different. Um, that quarter of town, which is called Yeni Imaret, the whole Mahalle, yeah. the whole quarter is called Yeni Imaret after that uh, that complex. So that's sort of the one before the last stop, if you will, on this architectural tour. And the final stop would, of course, be the Selimia, which is the masterpiece of Edirne, sitting on the top of the highest point, and then kind of you know just blasting skyward with this enormous construction, which you can see for miles and miles and miles away. And that's designed by Mimar Sinan. Who's right. And um, is, 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 I guess, by some thought to be his, his ultimate masterpiece mm. of a mosque construction. But it's curious that it's not a, a big complex like the Suleimania. The Suleimania is a very highly articulated okay. complex, whereas the Selimia is almost a kind of just single building wonder. Mm-hmm. It has... A madrasa and I think a dar kura next to it, and then a market that was added later mm-hmm. by Selim's son. But it's really all about the mosque. Yeah. Uh, and we this time traveled uh, across the border to Greece while we were in Edirne, and you can see the mosque very clearly coming from, from miles the, uh, away. That was impressive. Also because we were we're now in the month of August, so visibility isn't very good. There's a lot of haze and heat and a certain amount of pollution hanging around, although there's no industry in Edirne to speak of. So thinking about the fact that even on a hazy summer day, you can see the mosque from 30 miles away. Uh, if you imagined a cold winter night when the sky was really clear and the mosque was lit up, I can imagine that you would, you know, add another, you know, 10 or 20 miles at least to the visibility and then thinking about no light pollution uh, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. It gives you a sense of what a, just an, a striking sight it would have been for anyone approaching right. the city. And of course, that approach now is a little bit severed by the borders between Greece and Bulgaria and Turkey. So it gives you a sense of, I mean, it's sort of a foreshadowing, I guess, the fate of Adirne. Right there. A, a little bit, I think. I think it's true. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting about it, Dierne, is that I think that in order to, to see it, what I've worked very hard to do is to figure out what the distractions are for looking at the city. For, hmm. for, for me, for looking at the 15th century city. So what do I need to remove so that I can actually see this city? Uh, and one of the things that I have to remove is the Selimia, ironically uh-huh. enough, because it's built uh, right. in the 1570s, mm-hmm. which is quite late in terms of Edirne's architecture. Mm-hmm. I mean, the basic architectural layout of Edirne is is there by the middle of the 15th century. And then you add some things, but but the 16th century is not a big you know, building story uh, in terms of big monuments. There are all kinds of little kushks that are added in the palace, in the new palace, 
there are cheshmes, uh, fountains that are put up. But the big mosques are all built in the 15th century, except mm-hmm. for the Selimiya. I think a certain amount of the commercial building, large hans and caravanserais, were also in place by the end of the 15th century, although so many of them have been taken down now that mm-hmm. it's a little bit hard to, to figure out about that. So one of the things that you have to take out of the scenery is the Selimiya, ironically enough. Um, and another thing that uh, that you have to sort of do to change the way you're seeing things is to look at the river, the, the Marich River, which is today the border between Greece and Turkey, except that right at Edirne, it's not the border. Right. Because in the settlements of Lausanne, in fact, the Karaach suburb of Edirne, which is about four kilometers away, was included in within the borders of the Turkish Republic, but it actually is on the other side of the Marich River. Mm-hmm. There was a very important train station there at that point. But for most of the border, the Marich River is the boundary. And in the 15th century, the river wasn't a boundary. It was right. a highway. And exactly. one of the things that gives you a clue to that is that if you look at the buildings in Edirne, there are a lot of these small buildings from the first half of the 15th century which were actually built along the river. Uh, which I think gives you a sense that these were entry points into this city. Um, if you kind of if you think about what these smaller mosques were all about in that period, they were mosques, but they also were sort of single uh, single structure buildings that included a lot of the functions that were then separated out into Mm -hmm. different structures. So, for instance, whatever public kitchen function is going on, whatever hospice function is going on, in a later complex is actually folded into the single building in the early period. Um, So if you know, say, Sarah Wolper's work on on Tokat and Sivas from from the earlier period, from the Seljuk period... uh, and, and then the Beylik period immediately after that, she talks about how these small buildings are put up on the edge of town right mm-hmm. on roads as people came in. Uh, and then the big imperial buildings take up the center space mm-hmm. in town. So I think Edirne can be read physically a little bit like that. Mm-hmm. So the river then, um, you have to sort of change your mind over to thinking about the river not as a boundary, but as a unifying space. It's a sure. way that people can come together. Um, I mean, that's an interesting way of looking, like literally looking at the city, I guess, like in a historical perspective. And, you know, what you're saying just kind of emphasizes how important Adirne should be for architectural historians of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, if we think about some of the other cities that have been studied in the Ottoman Empire in terms of their architecture, one of the things we notice is that they were either Seljuk or Mamluk in the case of uh, greater Syria. Here, Adirne is part of a completely different um historical geography than those types of places that, that many, you know, and the Ottomans adopted a lot of the Mamluk elements and these elements in those places, but this is a place where those elements weren't already there. Right. Um, and what was there was a Byzantine city. Yeah. So that when the Ottomans conquer it from the Byzantines, uh, or whatever fragment of the Byzantine Empire was holding it at mm-hmm. that precise moment, uh, and we don't actually know the precise date of the conquest of Edirne, um, what they capture is a, a 
four-sided, almost rectangular, walled space with with defensive towers and mm. a clearly marked perimeter and a clearly uh, laid out axis of of crossing main streets that looks very much like the basic uh, Byzantine or, or Roman form of a stri- of a city. You can see it in Jerusalem. I mean, just this basic part. Uh, and that's what the Ottomans conquer, and then they begin to develop from that. And that space still exists today, although it's been burned and flooded many times and reconstructed. So what you see today is a kind of 20th century reconstruction sure. and reformulation of an old but modernized city. And you're talking about the pre Ottoman right, I'm talking what's called Kaleichi, Kaleichi yeah, exactly. um, which is inside the walls mm-hmm. uh, in this space. And mm-hmm. it feels very different when you walk into it today. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know that you've gone into it because all of a sudden the physical spaces that you're moving through are lined up in, in a very orderly, what, what we call orderly, grid. in that they're a grid, um, a gridded space. But that grid was in part invented in the early 20th century after a huge fire hmm. in 1905. So there was a kind of a grid. But one of the things I saw this summer um, was um, were two maps, one from 1903 and one from 1905. 1903 is before the very large fire in 1905, and you can see that there's a basic grid plan, but it, it moves and it's, it's not... Uh, it's not geometrically perfect in any way. And then in 1905, there's a reconstruction plan made, and that is all sharp angles and mm. 90-degree corners. It's very interesting. Hello and welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Yasmin Seal talking with Professor Amy Singer about her ongoing and forthcoming research on Ottoman Edirne. Uh, the musical clip you just heard is a little bit of an instrumental piece by uh, a performer from the 60s and 70s named Major Ibrahim, a very famous figure in uh, the Edirne wedding scene, uh, and his ensemble would. Uh, you know, composed compose of the very familiar uh, Roma music uh, of Adirne that we know today. And it's something that's always struck me about the Thrace region is how much uh, Roma music and these different cultural elements that you don't find in other parts of Anatolia are present uh, in the city. So moving away from our discussion on ar- architecture, I want to talk about the broader socio-cultural history of Adirne and its place in the Ottoman Empire as we move from, again, this capital city period through sort of the 16th century and then towards a period of maybe contraction and then growth again in Adirne and, of course, the Balkan Wars. It was striking to me that you said the Selemier, the architectural masterpiece, was built in 1570, a full century after the capital moves to Istanbul. So it obviously continues to thrive as a center of artistic production. Um, So I wondered if you could talk a bit more about what happens to the city after the capital moves and whether it continues to be a commercial center, for instance. So this is the part of my research that uh, is very partial at this point. But what's what's clear is that while the formal political center of the empire moves to Istanbul, uh, it doesn't stay there all the time. So 
for instance, one of the things we understand is that when the sultan goes off to war and the government goes with him uh, or his main uh, ministers, that's the center of action. And the sultan spent a certain amount of time in Edirne it seems every year, or at least every year, that the army was moving westward. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, when the sultan is camped outside of Edirne, uh, with or without his court, with or without his harem, uh, that becomes the center of gravity. Uh, and then they go off to into the Balkans. Let me just um, back up and try this a little bit differently. The campaign season starts in the spring, and the army has to actually be pulled together mm-hmm. in order to go off on campaign. And the place where that happens when the campaign's going westward is Edirne, mm-hmm. and in the plains outside of Edirne, not inside the city. Don't want thousands and thousands of soldiers flooding mm-hmm. into this little city. Sure. But that was where everybody sort of came together before they went off, and that was where they came back to to disperse in the fall. And one of the things that I seem to be seeing is that as a result of that, there is a very active slave market in Edirne. I don't know where Mm. it was physically, and I don't have many descriptions of the market, but there are bits and pieces of different people. So even in this early 15th century traveler, De La Boquière, he talks about seeing uh, captives being brought towards Edirne when he's going westward. Mm. Evlia Chelebi brags about having been on campaign with the army and having been having won a certain number right. of captives and he's taking them back to Edirne and he kind of bemoans the fact that it's been such a good campaign and there are so many captives that the price per head uh, of men and women is quite low uh, because there's a, an oversupply. Oh. Yeah. Um, so that's one kind of interesting thing. But it seems that the sultan and the court spent a certain amount of time every year in Edirne having fun. Mm -hmm. And it looks, I mean, we certainly have uh, work that's being done um, notably by Tulay Artan, but by others about the the whole culture of hunting, which is based in Edirne, and which seems also to have been based in Dimetoka, or Greek Didimotikon, Mm -hmm. Uh, Even in an earlier period under the Byzantines, that whole area is quite rich in game and it's a pleasant place to be. It's green, it's lush, uh, and it's far away from the political capital, which seems to make it a nice place to be. Uh, I noticed I've been watching um, Muteshem Yuzil episode by episode, and in episode 19, (laughs) Edirne finally comes on the scene (laughs) when the Sultan and Huram and to two of the princes make a kind of vacation trip out to Edirne. And the city is not depicted at all. What's depicted is a kind of kush set in a lovely garden. And the whole thing is extremely pastoral and vacation-like mm-hmm. uh, in its depiction. And so it seems that in popular memory of the Ottoman Empire, that's one of the aspects that's really stuck in people's minds. And so for, for the for for the Ottoman dynasty at least, at least for the government, this is both it's kind of a frontier space. It's a recreation space away from the capital, but also uh, a center near the, uh, which is until the late uh, 17th century. It's an expanding political frontier uh, that Due to the military presence in the town and all this, it it has it developed a certain economic life. I think I don't. 
I think that the economic life is actually a carryover from the Byzantine era. Ah, I okay. think that actually Edirne was a thriving commercial space uh, and a thriving trade town. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't a lot of work done on this. What I've picked up has been from the economic histories that exist. So, for instance, the old work from uh, Hayde and uh, Kate Fleet's much more recent work. Just looking at the mansions of Edirne there, it's clear that there was a huge amount of commerce mm-hmm. coming through and that it was very multinational in, okay. in mm-hmm. quotes. Uh, the Genoese were there, the Venetians were there, there were all kinds of people going through. There's also the kind of infrastructure of commerce that we would expect to see in an Ottoman city. So we have a very multi-confessional, multi-ethnic, multilingual population Mm -hmm. there. Uh, From what I understand from uh, scholars of Hebrew sources, there was a Jewish population in Edirne at the time of the conquest, the Ottoman conquest that had been there from the Byzantine era and that may actually have been, uh, have grown as a result of migrations out of Anatolia Hmm during the initial waves of, of Turkish uh, migrations and conquests, but I don't know very much about that. But then added to that are the in-migrations of Jews from the West, from Spain, after the expulsion, mm-hmm. from Spain and Portugal. Uh, and we know that there was quite a substantial Jewish community there with many, many Havra, many uh, synagogues. There was a Greek population a Greek Orthodox uh, population in the town. Mm-hmm. At some point, there is an Armenian population, and I have not m- figured out yet when the Armenian population comes to Edirne. It's not at all clear to me. Okay. But they are certainly a, a presence by the time we have the later 16th century uh, surveys, the 17th century uh, Tapu Tahrirs. Um, at when... In the 19th century, when you have more migrations, you have Bulgarian uh, migrations, there's a Catholic population there. Uh, there's a Baha'i population in Edirne to this day because yeah. Baha'u'llah uh, spent four years in Edirne. Mm. Uh, so Although I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. We are. We, we've jumped we, to the we 19th century chronology. with the Baha'u'llah. But, but I think that Edirne is a, is a space where there's a lot of movement. Yeah. There are a lot of people moving into Edirne, out of Edirne, through Edirne mm-hmm. for a large number of reasons. And those are would have to be looked at in their historical specificities. But it's definitely a town of movement. So let's try to look at that movement a little. Sort of talk about the through the, the demographics, as you say, and the changing demographics. Uh, Edirne today is, is not a huge city in Turkey. A little over 100,000 people. Uh, so that makes it rather small, actually, uh, in, in present-day terms. Uh, how how big was Edirne in its heyday in that 15th and, and 16th century? Uh, you know, maybe that's a good way place right. to start. So I'm not, I, I don't have any numbers to speak from for the 15th century more, but by the 16th century, it seems that there was a population maybe between twenty five and 30,000 people mm-hmm. in the later 16th century, which makes Edirne already one of the largest cities in the empire. Uh, it's definitely moves down a, a notch or two in the rankings once the Ottomans conquer the Arab provinces. 
Uh, Damascus is larger, uh, Aleppo Aleppo. is larger, Cairo Cairo. is larger. But in terms of uh, Anatolian and Balkan cities, it's one of the largest. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most prominent. Uh, We know that if we look at the rankings of Qadi salaries, uh, and of and of the rankings of the madrasas, those they were very high ranking madrasas in Edirne, mm-hmm. and I think that um, with Bursa and Istanbul, Edirne forms a part of what I think is maybe more useful to see as a multi city capital conglomerate. Call it a core, maybe. A core which includes other cities, um, maybe imagining them in rings or, or in some way as secondary. And here's what I mean. Bursa, we usually call the first capital of the Ottoman Empire, but that's a little bit misleading because we know that Iznik also had certain kinds of central functions mm-hmm. earlier on. And, um, and earlier, before the, cap- the conquest of Bursa, uh, the Ottomans have other bases up in Bithynia. As they spread out from Bursa and move westward, it seems that Gelibolu might actually have had some of those central functions mm-hmm. for a while uh, before the conquest of Edirne and also the city of Dimetoka or Didimotekon because unlike Edirne, which sits on a kind of low hill that definitely commands the surrounding plains and the passes that come out of the Balkan mountains, Didimotikon is on a very high hill and it's very defensible and it has a very it had a very strong fortress perimeter. It's only sort of a short float down the Marich River from Edirne. So yeah. it seems as though Edirne and Dimetoka together were a kind of capital mm-hmm. duet. Uh, and then, as we talked about, even when the formal capital moves to Istanbul, the Ottomans are constantly coming back and forth. Uh, and if you look at some of the mentions, the odd mention that says the prince, this prince was born in this city and this prince was born in that city, well, there seem to be people continually born in Edirne, in uh, Dimatoka. Mm-hmm. So that gives us a little bit of a sense of the, the um, distribution of functions. But Bursa... And this, this I find fascinating. Bursa is the Ottoman necropolis. So if you look at the f- early 15th century history when we talk about Edirne being the political center, mm-hmm. the sultans are still being buried in Bursa, even once the, um, the capital se- is seemingly in Edirne. So Mehmed I goes, is taken back to Bursa to be buried. Murat II is taken back to Bursa to be buried. Mm-hmm. There are no sultans buried in Edirne ah. because after Murat II is Fatih, and Fatih, as we know, is buried in Istanbul. So that function of being the imperial burial place is something that belongs to Bursa and to Istanbul but doesn't belong to Edirne at all. Mm-hmm. Bursa, on the other hand, doesn't seem to retain a very um, central military function, which Edirne certainly right. does, which makes even sense. though it's far away from the borders. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a month's march, you know, to get to the border from Edirne, uh, but but Edirne is where the army pulls itself together. So we can see that that these different cities have different functions and retain a different kind of importance in Ottoman memory. And perhaps one of the most striking indications of that is that now we're going to make a big chronological jump, but 
by the end of the 19th century, after Edirne has been captured and liberated, this is mm -hmm. from an Ottoman perspective, several times uh, during the various uh, Russo-Turkish wars and the Bulgarian wars, when Edirne is taken during the Balkan Wars, that is a catastrophe. Even though it's a kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a, a backwater in many ways, it hasn't really been so developed. Um, and it's definitely been beat up on mm -hmm. in all these wars. When it's conquered, that is a catastrophe, and it has to be recovered by this by the Ottoman Empire. And then when it's taken by the Greeks at the end of um, the First World War in the what then moves into the War of Independence, it's also very, very important that Edirne be liberated back mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. the Turkish Republic. It's not going to stay in Greece uh, when the final borders are drawn. Um, so even though Edirne doesn't have any significant industry, has lost a huge amount of its population, uh, and has been physically uh, really injured, it's very important that the city be inside the boundaries because it retains a symbolic importance. Right. Uh, during the early 20th century. During the early 20th century, and then I think even afterwards. I think mm. that in this very kind of um, incongruous way, it's ignored, and yet it's very much part of the historical sense of mm -hmm. what's, what, what we were or what mm -hmm. was the Ottoman Empire. All right, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Yasmin Seal here talking with Professor Amy Singer. I actually wanted to briefly introduce uh, Yasmin. This is her first time on the podcast, and we're introducing her as one of the new pillars of our London operations. Yasmin is a doctoral student at University of Oxford, uh, working on uh, the reception of the classics, i.e. the Roman and Greek classics uh, in the Ottoman world. I'm interested in how... Um Ottoman intellectuals rediscovered and appropriated classical culture, in particular Greek culture, and the slightly paradoxical relationship that Ottomans had with that classical past, as seen against the backdrop of Ottoman relations with modern Greece and mm -hmm. modern Greece's own attempts to claim that right. ancient heritage as their own. Especially from the 19th century onward, which uh, is very relevant for our discussion today on Adirne. And so we want to remind people who are in the UK, either temporarily or based there, that we are now recording in London and uh, we'll put out that invitation to get in touch with us to record with Yasmin and the rest of our team uh, over there in London. Uh, I mean, the subject of the reception of the classics in the Ottoman world and its comparison with the Hellenic world or Neo-Hellenism or whatever it is called is actually really relevant for our discussion of the fate of Adirne uh, through the late 18th century and 19th century into the 20th century onward, because Adirne, uh, Professor Singer, as I'm sure you can tell us better, is positioned in, let's, let's call it an awkward or uncomfortable position at really uh, the sort of the interface of where uh, the Ottoman Empire as a polity is fracturing for various different reasons. So maybe you could tell us about uh, the history of Adirne 
during that period of the 19th century, um, you know, its fate as a as an urban space, but you know, demographically and sort of some of the things that are that take place there that time. Okay, so after Edirne is conquered, um, somewhere in the f- later 14th century, the f- the boundary or the the delimitation between the Ottomans and whoever is beyond them westward into the Balkans moves away from Edirne quite rapidly. And so Edirne becomes very much in the interior of the Ottoman Mm -hmm. Empire. And we have basically the reverse process uh, through the 19th century as uh, what looked like the peripheral parts um, or more distant parts from the capital um, begin to be uh, removed or to leave the Ottoman mm-hmm. Empire. And so throughout the 19th century, Edirne is conquered by uh, either the Russian army, the Bulgarian army, mm-hmm. or some combination of armies, and, and finally the Greek army, as they are moving closer to uh, the Ottoman capital mm-hmm. of Istanbul, which was part of the Greek vision of a, a reconstituted Greek uh, Greek imperial state. And this doesn't happen all at once, right? It's that the conflicts move closer and closer to Adirne, uh, you know, the armies come in and out. And right, and it's actually, it's fascinating, and the first uh, the first conquest, if you will, or occupation of Adirne is, I think, in 15, in 1828, 29, and it's only for a few weeks. Uh, and then again, um, in... Uh, the 1840s, I think, and then in the Crimean War, there's no conquest, but the French army parks itself in Adirne mm-hmm. for a while, uh, and then certainly in the um, the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-78, the Doksan Uçharbe, and then again in the Balkan Wars, and then again uh, in um, in at the end of the First World War. Now, what happens each time is that there's a certain influx of people to Edirne, mostly Muslims who are moving out of the Balkans yeah. uh, into Edirne. But I've also, I think I've seen a certain amount of Jewish migration into Edirne hmm. as, um, um, as people are pushed out. Uh, it may be that it, things become much more unsettled. Uh, and so people are looking for a, a new commercial home mm-hmm. um, and finding their 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 communal links, but each time there's that there's an invasion of Edirne, there are people who leave who are pushed out, and then there are people who come in. Uh, and one of the more striking ones, for instance, is in 1877-78, the Muslim population of Edirne, uh, not on not all of it, but a large part of it leaves, and then because this occupation lasts for many many months, there's an influx of Christian of Christians Uh, uh, into Edirne. And then when the Ottomans recover the city, there's an outflow of Christian population. How many people were we talking about? Like, what is the size of Edirne at this point? So I think that the peak... So we talked about the fact that Edirne's population might have been something like twenty-five or 30,000 in the late 16th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, Population figures for the 17th and 18th century are somewhat murky. So I think... (laughs) Unfortunately, I'm going to jump over that. We do have much better numbers in the 19th century, and it seems as though the Ottoman po- population may have peaked in Edirne by about 1840 or so, 1850, uh-huh. at about 120,000, I think. And then we see it gradually 
diminishing for the rest of the 19th and into the early 20th century so that by uh, the early 1920s, after the founding of the Turkish Republic, the population is probably down to about 34,000, and it doesn't recover until after the Second World War. So the population remains very, very low, um, and for a couple of reasons. So we saw that people were being pushed out and then coming in uh, as you have refugee inflows from the Balkans, Mm -hmm. and you have basically um, Christian outflows from Edirne. Mm -hmm. Um, when the city is recovered by the Ottomans and then um, and then by the the Turkish Republic, so that's a kind of what I sometimes call an unmixing of peoples, which is basically the dynamic of what's happening to, in nationalist population movements mm-hmm. throughout this whole period. After the population exchange in 1924, when Greeks move to Greece and Muslims come back to Turkey, uh, it seems to be the case that Turkish Thrace is one of the places that absorbs the Greek population. People aren't moving very far if they're moving from... You mean absorbs the new Muslim population? They absorb the Muslim population that's moving from, say, Salonika, well, not Salonika, but from the villages, more the smaller places. Uh Yeah, I think that they absorbed it. I think Thrace took maybe half the population mm. in practice. I mean, right. I know I've seen the numbers for the early exchanges. They're talking about sending huge numbers of people all over Turkey. But in the end, most of them end up kind of clustered around Istanbul, especially right. in Thrace and right. Marmara region. I think except for people who were coming from Crete and the islands who were mm-hmm. more clustered in Izmir and, and yeah. places along the coast. Um, and there is a, an interesting museum in Chatalja uh, that talks about the experience, the very human experience of the the population exchange. But it doesn't end there. Um, The population movements continue with the Thrace events of 1934, where um, there's a large outflow of Jewish population and other minorities from Thrace back towards Istanbul. uh, Why? Okay, so the Thrace events are or the Trakya Olaylara, weren't really very much talked about. I certainly didn't hear about them until maybe 15 years ago, partly because I don't study Republican history, but also because there wasn't a lot written about them. What seems to have happened was that during a period of hypernationalism uh, in the 30s, there were what in another era might have been called pogroms, but there was certainly um, violent action taken against minority communities who were living in the Thrace region in the context of um, what was perceived as the threat from Greece and Bulgaria um, at, in that period when that border was very, very hot. Oh. Uh, and the minorities were looked at with a certain amount of suspicion. Um, this is also the period when you have the um, Vatandash Turkçe Konush campaign um, to to Turkify language, to Turkify uh, culture. And it's partly in that context, as far as I understand. And 34 is the resettlement law. Right. It leads to, it's the run-up to Dersen massacres and whatnot. Exactly. So in in that overall context, you have another outflow of minorities Mm -hmm. from... uh, Turkish Thrace back towards Istanbul. And this is when you have a migration of, a noticeable migration of Jews out of Edirne. 
there's another migration of Jews out of Adirne with the founding of the State of Israel, uh, and it seems that there's, um, there's an exodus from Adirne towards uh, Israel, but there had been even before that towards Palestine, uh, and I actually heard some people talk about that on this visit where I met um, an elderly man who had come back to Adirne from Israel to visit, and he explained that in the early 40s when the Nazis had, were in Greece, um, mm-hmm. that there was serious concern that, that they would be crossing the border, and that anybody who could should be leaving Edirne and that vulnerable yeah. region. So that also set people in motion um, to, to leave. Uh, and I think, so, so the population recovery in Edirne doesn't happen until after the Second World War. Mm. And then there's, uh, I think, a, a dynamic that begins to invest in the city and to develop it so that today the population is about 150,000. Right. But it's still not a place with a lot of industry, thankfully. Uh, so it didn't <laughs> well. undergo the process that Bursa did, where it became a real industrial factory town. Um, now, on the one hand, it's very good for the environment in a yeah. DNA. On the other hand, it's kept a DNA as a small place with a limited amount of uh, of um, of employment opportunities. Um, But it also, I think, wasn't until the political relations between Greece and Turkey had calmed significantly, Hmm. even at the end of the 20th century, when it began to feel like a calmer, friendlier place. When I first went out to Adirne in the 1980s, it still felt like a much more militarized zone. And it's much more relaxed now. And the border is, I mean, it's very easy to cross over and back. And you have Greeks coming every weekend uh, to spend time sure. in Adirne. So it feels much more relaxed, much more open, sure. much more mm-hmm. friendly. Although Turkish people can't cross the border quite as easily as the their Greek counterparts. Well, I think it partly depends who you are. I certainly traveled with Turkish friends across the border, but they were university people who have what's called a green passport, right, exactly. so it's very easy for them to cross. Um, but I did have the sense that it's not so very difficult um, and that there is a certain amount of traffic back and forth, mm. although I think it's certainly more um, more commercially interesting for Greeks to come to Turkey out of the Eurozone where their money goes a little bit farther mm-hmm. uh, than for Turks to go to Greece. Okay, yeah. um, and I think that that, certainly before 2009, that was, that was very evident. Um, mm. I think Greeks are somewhat more... Um, uh, restrained in their spending now, uh, so they're not coming quite as frequently. But but there are you know Greek tourists who come over the border and Bulgarian tourists who come, sure. and that is a much more friendly feeling uh, experience than what was true in the the nineties uh, and in the early part of the twenty first century. Uh, I think that one of the big changes that happened was after the the ninety nine nineteen ninety nine earthquake when. Greek Turkish relations kind of underwent a sort mm-hmm. of shock therapy with the mutual uh, exchange of assistance following the earthquakes, and that seems to be playing out as well. Uh, but Trakya University is is part of the Erasmus uh, program, so that there are students coming there from abroad, and the town has a much more uh, kind of lively feel. I mean, it's in, it's. I mean, every time I've been there, it's been quite nice, but it's only been. 
again, in that sort of decade period of maybe there is a, a, a different trajectory for DNA that has been really, as, as you've summarized, been in this very long shadow of sort of the ruptures caused by nationalism or conflicts surrounding nationalism from the early 19th century onward, well into the Republican period. It's very interesting getting this long view, this incredibly textured history that comes yeah. from five centuries um, of, of history. If I could sort of drag you back to the 19th century, I wonder if during this period where Edirne is occupied by various forces and then recovered and then reoccupied, whether during those times there's ever a sense in which its earlier status as a capital is reactivated or whether there's any sense that it has a kind of special status within the Ottoman or Turkish imaginary in the way that its recovery is celebrated. I don't know enough Mm -hmm. about the 19th century Mm -hmm. to say anything Mm -hmm. really significant. What is clear is that um, if you look at, even just looking at the map of the city, in the 19th century, it's full of schools. It has a very diverse uh, texture of schools, Greek, Bulgarian, uh, Alliance Francaise, mm-hmm. um, all of those kinds of, of schools exist then. Um, I think that you would have to, we'll find somebody to talk about mm-hmm. 19th century Thrace. Yeah, sure. Uh, who can be a little bit more specific. I mean, just talking about sort of the imaginary and the mm-hmm. way Edirne is, memor- is, is conceived in memory. I mean, in 1913, it is, I think, there is a whole series of stamps issued. Mm-hmm celebrating the reconquest of Edirne. Yeah. Um, and there is apparently another series of stamps issued in 1961 to celebrate the 600th anniversary of the conquest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know sure. when stamps begin to be used in the Ottoman Empire, but one might look there. There's a good photographic record mm-hmm. of the 19th century uh-huh. Uh there are um, any number of photographers who are now whose photographs are now emerging. There's um, some of them have long been known um, French, Russian. There's a Georgian photographer named Ermakov, um, and just recently, Irsika, the the research foundation that sits in Yildiz Park, has published a huge album of photos of Edirne. Uh, 19th and very early 20th century photos from the various prominent photographers who were recording the Ottoman Empire then. And it's it's really wonderful to look at those photos mm-hmm. so that there's a very graphic uh, record of what was happening in Edirne even then. There are some 19th century maps that, that you can look at. And I think that uh, the history of 19th century Edirne is certainly sure. begging to be written. I mean, if Salonik was so important at that time for those same reasons, again, Adirne is not a port necessarily, but perhaps, you know, given the importance of Salonik in that border area during these conflicts, Adirne may be part of that story as well. And, you know, as you've said, there's a lot of research to be done on these um, more ignored uh, urban spaces in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, And we really appreciate you coming on the podcast today, Professor Singer, and giving us a little introduction of what sort of that long history of Adirne would look like. Well, it's been great fun, and I thank you for the opportunity to share my love of this uh, city. Well, we we really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I want to remind our listeners that on our website we have... uh, a bibliography with not just uh, links to uh, Professor Amy Singer's 
um, work, but also other useful uh, works to read up on the, the very long history uh, of Ottoman Adirne. Uh, the blog is also a place where you can leave your comments and questions and maybe check out some of our other episodes. As, um, another way to do that is to find us on Facebook and join our over 20,000 uh, passive followers, mostly, uh, uh, in keeping up with the latest episodes and other content that we share on the page. Uh, and I do invite you all to join us again in our next episode and, and keep track of uh, the, the forthcoming episodes in our series on urban space and the Ottoman Empire. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, uh, I want to invo- invite you all to join us next time. Until then, take care. Mm-hmm.